1 Kings 3, starting at verse 16. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, the one says, this is my son who lives and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, but your son is the dead one and my son is the living one. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to understand this text. Uh, and I pray, Father, that you would give me wisdom and insight as we walk through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I asked Tabitha, since I was going to be preaching on Mother's Day, if I should preach a Mother's Day sermon. She said, only if you encourage us. <laughs> so I said, okay, hopefully this is encouraging. But I know it's an odd text. And actually, you know, when I picked this text, I thought, I'm being unique. And then I saw on Sermon Central that about 20 sermons are there that list this text and preach it on Mother's Day. So very odd. But uh, I think Sermon Central must hold a lot of sermons. And you know what I found? There was one by Glenn Durham. Same text for Mother's Day last year. Very, very interesting. So now, the moral of this story, the, the, all the text that I read is obviously encapsulated in the last verse. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. The first 15 verses of 1 Kings 3 was where Solomon sacrifices a thousand animals or something like that in Gibeah, and the Lord appears to him that night and asks him for what he wants. And it's then that Solomon asks for wisdom, and God gives it. In addition to all of these many blessings, he's rewarding him for not having asked for all these other things, so he gives them to him anyway. The very next portion of text is this. And so it obviously exists to affirm the fact that God gave him the wisdom that he had requested. And so it's proof of that. So now, is it appropriate for me to take it and use it for this other purpose? I, I think absolutely. 
I, I wanted, though, to kind of let you know, though, that I know, everybody knows the purpose of the text. And that's why when you go to commentaries, you get no help for the type of message that I'm going to bring from this text because all the commentaries just focus on the purpose of the text. They don't even go into this deal with the women, really, into the details of it, uh, other than to just kind of cover over what everybody covers over. So I wanted to dig deeper, though. And I think as you dig deeper, you find more. And I've been amazed. I told a couple of people that this would not be an exegetical sermon because I intended to use this text only kind of as a jumping off point. But it wouldn't let me jump off. I, I got sucked in and, and I'm trying to figure it all out. And I'm like, okay, God, I'm going to have to preach on this text. It's not typically exegetical, but yet I think you'll see my point as I move through it. So the, what I want to do first now, though, is talk about the facts. Let's go back through this whole story. It's obviously a legal case that we're dealing with here. And so I want to get the facts straight, as we all should. So we start right at verse 16. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. So harlots is a word for prostitute. So these women are prostitutes. And I was first kind of surprised that some people attempted to say no, they weren't prostitutes. And so I thought, well, okay. So they gave reason why in the Hebrew this word for harlot and what all of our modern Bibles consider harlot or prostitute or something, uh, why they would say that it means innkeeper. And I really couldn't find much support. Now, I don't know Hebrew, and uh, that is a weakness uh, in what I'm studying. I know this much Greek, and that's probably a weakness when I'm studying too. But uh, yet I know no Hebrew, so, so that wasn't any help. So I, I, got, I went around and studied as much as I could, and I really saw no one else that had that view. No, no modern person has that view. And I believe that view is a product of the culture which produced that commentary that held that view, and that was from the mid-1800s. So I think it's just in Victorian England, during that era, they're thinking, no, no, King Solomon wouldn't have allowed prostitutes into his court. He was kind of like above that or something. And yet, I want to read to you Leviticus 19.15 that the king is, or the no person in uh, Israel is to be partial to the poor, nor honor the mighty in righteousness you shall judge. So just because of the fact that these women are prostitutes does not mean that their case should not be heard, that they should not be given justice by the law of the land. Now, I think all of us, or maybe some of you have heard of these like stupid criminals, and there are, have been stupid criminals who have hired a prostitute and then gone to complain to the police about the fact that they did not you know, get satisfaction through their, through their uh, purchase. I mean, this is in this country. People go to the police. So then the police arrest them, <laughs> of course, because that's not legal. It's, I guess it's legal in parts of Nevada, but, you know, it's never been legal in, in Omaha. Well, maybe it has been 100 years ago. I don't know. But anyway, it's not legal now. And so this is just kind of silly. But I think that same type of thinking works its way even into commentators' minds where they're projecting their culture into the Bible. And yet Solomon, it's interesting to me that God gives Solomon wisdom to rule over this mighty nation. And what is the first case that we have evidence of him hearing? It's at the fringe of society. I, I think that is typical, right? Because law keepers keep the law. It's the lawbreakers that are at the fringes of society that tend to be breaking a disproportionate amount of the laws. And yet that's why justice exists. It exists to, to keep lawbreaking at the fringes and to keep the lawful as law-abiding citizens. 
So now these prostitutes had a right to justice. So now, in verse 17, the first woman speaks and it says, and one woman said, and one woman said. So we don't have any legal terms here, but we know with legalese that this woman, the first one to bring her case, is what's called the plaintiff. And as I was studying these, I thought plaintiff and defendant, you know, they're fairly clear. The plaintiff is the one that's complaining. And so if you think of plain, plaint, complain, and then tiff, (laughs) they're involved in a tiff. They're complaining about the tiff they're in. And then the defendant, they're defend, defend, and I guess they're defend an ant. Ant means nothing. Defend ant. Makes a good mental picture, though. But so now you get the plaintiff and the defendant. So when it says the one woman said, I I don't believe this is haphazard. It isn't like that woman chose to speak first. They're before the king. There is going to be order in this court. And so I believe this woman is speaking because she is the plaintiff. She is the one that is bringing the case before the king. Now, then she tells her story. And let me reread a little bit of it. This woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I'd given birth that this woman also gave birth. We were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. So how many people are in the house? Four, yeah. See, so she says two of us, but obviously she's excluding the two newborns. But nobody else. It reads like a, like a Sherlock Holmes story to me. I mean, I'm just waiting for Watson to pipe in here. Then it happened the third day after I'd given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was in the house with us except the two of us in the house. Uh, That's exactly how, if you've read Sherlock Holmes, that's exactly, when he's sitting down to hear it, that's exactly how it goes. And so I'm in a mystery now. That's why I had to kind of get sucked in, and I couldn't jump off. I like mysteries. I like Sherlock Holmes. I've read all the Sherlock Holmes stories at least once. So now, one of the babies dies, right? And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So starting at verse 19, we are beginning to get into the meat of the case. So the plaintiff is saying, this woman's uh, son dies. And then she offers this whole big story about how it happened. Now, she was asleep, right? So she's saying, this is what happened, even though I was asleep, I know, because this is now what I'm faced with. So she alleges a switch was made. So in other words, here we are in an open court and these women are defending themselves. But if we were really in a trial, I think Scott would affirm that this couldn't stand. As soon as that woman said something like that, objection, your honor. You know, this is alleged. She doesn't know this. And so only the facts are supposed to be present in a modern court, right? But here it is. It's kind of more like people's court where everybody kind of gets a chance to say their piece and entertain the audience. But so here... Everybody's going to get their say. Solomon's going to give them a fair shake. So she alleges that a switch was made in verse 20. She arose. Her, her baby died because she slept on him, because she suffocated him. And so she arose. The defendant protests, no, but the living one is my son. And so then it would seem that they continue to argue because this is what it says at the end of verse 22. The dead one is your son. The living one is my son. This is the first woman retorting back to the first woman. Thus they spoke before the king. I don't think thus they spoke before the king is saying that now we've finished what they've had to say. It went on and on. And then, you know, the bailiff whacked his, you know, whoever does that. I guess it's not him. It's a judge. Order in the court. So these women are at odds with one another. Thus they spake before the king. They're going at it with one another. Now, 
What's interesting in this is as the story unfolds, you see that by verse, let me see, by verse 25, and the king said, divide the living child in two, the baby must be there, right? I mean, the baby must be there to have the threat of this. And so I ask you, is it potential that the dead baby is there too? Because this is a kidnapping case. It's, it's, uh, this isn't like a property case. This isn't where come back next week or next month. This is important to get this resolved. Now, in our culture, this baby would be you know, seven by the time it gets resolved, right? I mean, this would take forever. But here it's going to happen in a day, I think. I mean, I think these women, this woman has just woken up. She's just complained about this. They've gone to their local law authorities, and they're like, whoa, this is bigger than us. And so it gets escalated quickly. I'm thinking the same day. I don't know that for sure, but I'm thinking it's very, very soon. And so we've got the whole dispute very raw, and it's being thrust right into Solomon's lap, probably the morning after he has been given that wisdom by God, I'm thinking. The test comes immediately, the proof of Solomon's gift. It comes immediately. So, the true mother then relinquishes her claim when the king says, divide the baby. The woman whose son was lying, this is verse 26, the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. So then the other woman says, go ahead and divide him. And we ask, how can that woman possibly be so cruel? And yet she's acting out of her loss, right? I mean, yes, oh, I won't defend her. She's being extremely cruel. She's also trying to steal this living baby. And yet her envy, her covetousness drives her to where if I can't have that living baby that I want, then I don't want you to have it either in this home that we're sharing. Why are they sharing this home? Do we know? People at the fringes of society often share homes. They might not even know each other. I don't know if you read the local news, but I do. And a lot of the crimes that get reported begin with roommates struggling over one another, fighting with one another, killing one another. And so not all roommates are friends. Roommates sometimes exist because they're forced together. Circumstances have forced them. And so perhaps that's the situation here. But perhaps with the birth of both children, perhaps they're best of buds. We don't know. But we do know that roommates don't necessarily have to get along. Now, let me read to you another story. It's very brief. It's only six verses. It's from 2 Kings chapter 6. I'll start at verse 24. 2 Kings 6.24 It happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a young woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. 
Now, I don't know if these sons were living or dead at the time that these women are making this bargain, but either way, it's horrific. And yet this was foretold in Deuteronomy 28 in the portion of text on the blessings and cursings that would come upon Israel if they obeyed or if they disobeyed. And God said right there in Deuteronomy, if you disobey, this is what you'll do. And I won't even read that. It's more disgusting than what I just read. Now, you might be thinking, oh, this is your uplifting Mother's Day sermon, huh? <laughs> it needs work. And I agree. It's, it's going to a different place than where we have now been. Now, I've tried to go through the facts I've tried, I've tried to introduce as much as I can about the facts. We've begun to get into some of the trying to figure out, you know, the roommates, were they friends, all this stuff. This is kind of getting into inferences. And let me share a few more inferences. I don't believe either woman is married. They're prostitutes. They're, they're sharing this house together. I don't think there's any reason for us to believe they're married. I don't believe either one has any older children because they would most likely have been mentioned as being in the home. They're not in the home. So I don't believe they have any living children. And if, and if they did, obviously they're not in this home. And so you have to ask, why wouldn't they be? Now, they are prostitutes. And so we know that they know the dark side of life in this big city that they're living in in Jerusalem. So they are on the fringes of society. So they're used to crime. They're used to being wronged without getting justice, most likely, and potentially wronging others without having justice done upon them. Now, facts and inferences. Now, I want to do something that's a little unusual. Now, this is up to you parents if you want to participate, if you want to let your little children participate. But I have here about 20 pages, and I want to hand them out to children that are 5 to 10 years old and then have them participate in a little exercise in order to get at the next phase of what I want to share. So if you have any children from 5 to 10, then you're willing to let them come up. Have them come on up. They won't have to talk, but uh, I just want them to come on up here and line up, and I'll give them a piece of paper and instruct them once they're up here. Come on up. Now, I'm going to explain something to you this. I'm going to hand you a picture. There is actually a sheet of paper with two pictures on it. On the left side, picture one, it has a picture of a young woman. And on the right, it has a picture of an old man, okay? So there's a picture of an old woman and a young man. Now, don't open it yet. I'll just hand it to you at first. Now, I already told you what you're going to see, right? You're going to see a young woman on the left and an old man on the right. Go ahead and open it up. Now, look at the picture on the left, at the young woman. Does everybody see a young woman? Does anybody not see a young woman? If you don't see a young woman, just raise your hand. You don't see a young woman? What do you see? Um, I just oh, yours is upside down, honey. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you see the picture on the left? Do you see a young woman? Yeah, picture number one. Do you see a young woman? What do you see, Mimi? Do you see something oh, different? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, do you see a young woman? What did you say? looks like a widow. You see something different than I said. I said everybody would see a young woman, but you see something different, don't you? You see an old woman. Which way is she looking? Is she kind of looking off to the left? Which way is the young woman looking? Away from us? Yeah. Now, over here is an old man. Do you see the old man? Does anybody see anything else in that picture? Look at it very closely. Does anybody see anything else? Thank you, young people, for participating. Now, 
As you parents see these sheets, the reason I brought up the young children is some of you may have seen these already, especially the one on the left. That one is in many classes. It shows what? Both a young woman looking away and an older woman looking down. And so it shows both. And over here, it's very tough to see, but do all of you see an old man with leaves around his head like old man forest or something? What you see when you look very closely is what? Right at the center of it. What do you see right at the center of it? Oh, nothing. See a need for better glasses. Okay, we're done. This one is harder to see. And, and see, it's this latter picture. And actually, you kind of proved my illustration. In this story, it's tough to see what I'm about to share with you. And yet I think you need to kind of imagine it before you can really see it. But we'll get to that here in a sec. For now, I can get rid of these. What's in this? Okay. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul tells us not to think beyond what is written. Now, there is an implied obverse of that, to think to what is written. So in other words, we can't just ignore Scripture. But yet, we are not to go beyond what is written. And I think we are designed by God to fill in the pieces of missing pictures. So we have to then not use a portion of what God has given us to benefit us in life when we come to the Scripture. Our imaginations and our creativity needs to kind of be ratcheted down when we're reading the Word to not let it get out of hand. So what I want to do is this. Let me read again the plaintiff's complaint, and it's in 1 Kings 3, starting at verse 17. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. We were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. Now, we don't know that she lay on him, right? She's assuming. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid her in my bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. When I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Now, that is the story. That's the story that the plaintiff brings. That is the accusation that the other woman has done this evil deed. But do we know that this other woman has done this evil deed? That's why we're in court. We're trying to decide this. And that's what called upon Solomon to make this decision wisely because he knew that the facts couldn't corroborate this woman's story, right? And that's why he had to devise this other means. Now, I am proposing to you that it is possible that the plaintiff actually is the mother of the bereaved baby. She's the bereaved mother. And yet she's concocted this whole story to try to steal the other woman's baby. Now, how many of you have always considered, as you've reflected on this story, that the plaintiff was in the right? that she was the woman who had her baby stolen. I always did. Did you? I mean, really, honestly, maybe you've never read this portion of text before. I mean, I've read it a lot. I'm very familiar with this. Now, if you believe that, now, did any of you ever really have any doubts that it wasn't her? Did any of you believe that it could have been the other woman, the defendant, that actually, that actually is the one that is the mother? 
I need to get you to think like that, and I will help you think like that, because frankly, I don't think the text proves that the plaintiff was in the right. Now, let me give you what I believe are potential proofs that you might, if you study this scripture as I've just done, it might lead you to believe that the plaintiff is in the right. But I want to try to set them up and knock them down and show you that I really don't think it's there. First, a, pos a possible evidence is this, and it could have unknowingly convinced you that the plaintiff was in the right. In verse 22, we read, Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No. So in other words, the plaintiff has rebutted and said, No, and, he, and she's referred to as the first woman. And now, down at the end, when the king speaks, the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child. So first is used up earlier to speak to the plaintiff, and then first is used down here as a designation of the woman who is the true mother. So you think, okay, well, that's proof then. This first woman is the woman. But if you read the King James... And I don't know about the Hebrew, but I'm, I'm unclear as to why the King James would not have done this. The King James says in verse 22, And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, No, but the dead is thy son. And so, see, in the Hebrew, I don't believe there is a word that is telling you that that plaintiff is referred to as first. Nor in verse 27, Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child. So I don't believe in the Hebrew there is a first referenced here that is, that, is, that is absolutely stated. But when you look at all the modern versions, New King James, NIV, NAS, they all use first and first. So you might say, okay, I'm going to go with the first and first. I think that makes sense. Well, okay, but let me give you another thing that causes me to disbelieve that that first is correct. Because I don't think they necessarily refer to the same first. Because, see, in verse 22, and the first woman said no, that's where she's rebutting. And so when it was introduced, it said, now two women came forward and one woman said. There's, so there's no way of telling the women apart other than who was speaking first. So then a woman spoke first, and then she's referred to later in that same dialogue as the first woman. So I believe it's a relative reference to them, to her having spoken first in that dialogue. But now, when... The woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. She said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child. By no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child. I believe he's referring to the first woman that spoke the second time. Not to them always having maintained a first and a second in the whole discourse. So I don't believe first is able to definitively say that the plaintiff is the one that then spoke first the second time. Also, there's another thing that's a little odd here to me. Verse 26 says, If first was intended to refer to the plaintiff, as it would be in this theory that I've just proposed and tried to knock down in your minds, why in verse 26 when he says, Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, why would it say then the first woman spoke to the king? If first always means her, the plaintiff, why wouldn't it say that? But it says, Then the woman whose son was living spoke. To me, that phrase is proof that God did not want us to know whose baby it was. We don't know whether it was the plaintiff's baby or the defendant's baby that is living now. We don't know, I don't think. I don't think the text can prove that. Now, I could be proven wrong. Someone could go into the Hebrew and say this. And like I said, when you go into the commentaries, nobody even talks about it. Nobody cares 
because they're all focused on the wisdom of Solomon. But I think, I honestly think that the purpose of this text is not the wisdom of Solomon. We know where the wisdom of Solomon got him, right? It got him to have a thousand women, probably absolutely no peace in his home anywhere. He probably spent his time alone in his bathroom if he had one. And, and so here he is, the wisest man on earth, and he behaves so horribly. He ends his life miserably. He has this huge experiment that goes awry, and I've talked about that before. But see, wisdom, I don't believe, is the main point of this text. I introduced that as the main point, and I told you, yes, I believe the same, but I don't think it is. I think the main point is what I'm now going over, that we are not to think beyond what is written. We're not to be jumping to conclusions. Solomon didn't. He was wise, and he didn't jump to conclusions. So the text isn't about Solomon. It's about these women. It's about what's going on right here. Well, I got to my next point already. Is it important? Now, I want you to think this through as I walk through it. First, I'll go through the easy one. I believe the one that everybody is thinking. If the plaintiff is the real mother. If the plaintiff is the real mother, then the crime went down just as she described it. She awakes, finds her baby dead in the light. She examines the baby, sees that it's not her baby, and then it breaks. She's now accusing the other woman. They go to the local authorities. They can't resolve it. They go to the king, and now here, here's where they are. But... For all she knew, when she blunted, uh, blurted out these words, no, my Lord, give her, give her the boy. What did she lose? As the plaintiff, what did this woman lose in this lawsuit? What did she lose? She lost her position as a claimant for that child. She gave it up. The defendant has the baby. The defendant now gets to keep the baby. I'm not talking about before the, the other woman speaks. Because remember, the other woman went on to say, divide him. Let's not even go there yet. That's not important because the first, this, I'm speaking about this first woman that spoke, the one who's, who really has the living child, who's there, about to be divided. Let me tell you a little bit about Solomon, this time in his life. Solomon has consolidated the kingdom in his hands. How did he do that? By executing his brother, Adonijah by executing the former military commander, Joab, by exiling uh, Abiathar, the high priest under David, and by executing Shemaiah, the man who had thrown rocks at David while he had escaped from Jerusalem when Absalom was moving in. David had advised him to do some of these things, and he, he basically told him, watch out for Joab, you better execute him for what he did in killing Abner, and, you, and I want you to execute Shemaiah too if he misbehaves. But so Solomon consolidates the kingdom in his hands. This is the king we're dealing with. This is no longer an unknown quantity. This is no longer a young man who people might be feeling is unprepared for the throne. No, he's on the throne and he's exercising his authority as king. The law is in his hands and he's exercising it. He's executing people for having broken the law as he sees it. So this is the king we're dealing with. This is the king who these women are bringing their living son into his presence. The one is anyway. Now, if the defendant is the real mother, if the plaintiff is the real mother, she's just lost her hold on her child. She's brought an accusation, but that accusation fell flat. She's given up the baby. 
But what if the defendant is the real mother? Put yourself in her shoes. She has awoken to a woman who is screaming at her for her baby, saying that she stole it. She looks at her baby, this is my baby, what are you talking about? You're crazy. Maybe she is. She's just had her baby die. So in the night, this woman's baby dies, she recognizes it, she, she devises this plan to get the baby swapped, but then she thinks better of it. Well, no, I won't swap the babies. I'll just say she swapped the babies. And that way it puts her on the defensive. Listen to this. This is from Solomon's own mouth. Proverbs 18, 17. The first to speak seems right. That's why we believe the plaintiff. Without enough evidence in our scripture, that's why we believe her. Because she speaks first. And we put ourselves in her position as if she's telling the truth. We can't imagine people lying about this. Right? But they do. People lie. And people on the fringes of society that are used to law-breaking, they lie a lot. Why are we so quick to believe her? I don't believe it's warranted. Now, if this defendant, who is having her baby stolen even while it's in her arms, if she speaks up in the king's court and she says, No, my lord, give her the baby, what is she, what is she giving up? She's giving up her baby. She's giving up her life as well. Because now she's admitted to the crime of kidnapping and she will be executed for that crime. So see, that's why I think it's important to think this through. Now, I can't convince you of this, but I know that it is a possibility. I don't know which woman lost her baby here. I don't know which woman is having to stand here in Solomon's court and face the possibility of having her son split in half right before her eyes. But I do know that that's why I named this uh, sermon A Mother's Love. So see, that's why I had to stick with this text. That's why I couldn't jump off because as I examined it and as I really read about it, I thought, we don't know. How is it that we can't know? So now the mother's love the title of the message is exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. This mother that blurted out these words was giving up her child. If she was the defendant, she was also giving up her life. Now, put yourself in the, in the, uh, uh, the role of these women again and think about what the king has said. I've already told you, he's a bloody king. And they are probably used to kings ruling capriciously. When the king said, divide him, and that second woman, the woman who was trying to steal the baby, agreed, yes, go ahead and divide him. I don't believe she felt that she was going to be perceived as being in the wrong. She's just agreeing with the king. Does it ever really pay to disagree with a king? Isn't it usually better if you agree with a king? So she's just agreeing with the king. Yeah, do what you want. You're a wise man. So now... I already talked about the babies perhaps being present. Put yourself in the uh, role of this mother now, the mother whose living baby is there. The king has said, go get me a sword. And she's thinking, you know, he's just had Joab executed. He's had his brother Adonijah executed. Why on earth is he bringing a sword? What's he going to do with this sword? And then she hears these words. And then she says, oh, my Lord, give her the living child. So this is what she has given up. Now, she 
was ready to give her life for that child. I mean, that child is her life. She just gave birth to it. I mean, not much time has passed. I mean, you know, it's probably not been more than days or a couple of weeks at most. I want to read you a story. It's a, a story from concentration camp, so you know it's not going to be a good one, really. Good but sad. Solomon Rosenberg, his wife and their two sons were arrested and placed in a concentration camp. The rules were simple. As long as they did their work, they were permitted to live. When they became too weak to work, they would be exterminated. Rosenberg watched as his own father and mother were marched off to their deaths, and he knew that his youngest son, David, would be next because he had always been a frail child. Every evening, Rosenberg came back into the barracks after his hours of hard labor and searched for the faces of his family. When he found them, they would huddle together, embrace one another, thank God for another day of life. One day he came back and didn't see those familiar faces. He finally discovered his oldest son, Joshua, in a corner sobbing. Josh, tell me it's not true. Joshua turned to his dad and said, it's true. Today David was not strong enough to do his work, and so they took him away. Mr. Rosenberg then asked, but where is your mother? Joshua could barely speak and finally uttered. When they came for David, he was afraid and cried to mom. So she took his hand and went with him. See, that's a mother's love, right? Sacrifice. Here is her youngest frail son who she's known all of his life, cared for all of his life, and here they are in these harsh circumstances. And when he has to go face his death, she just walks with him, sacrificing her life to comfort him. So everybody loves. Everybody. I don't care who you are. The meanest, meanest, nastiest criminals on this earth love. They have the capacity to love and they exercise it every day. They just may only love themselves. Right? What does the word say? Ephesians 5.29 says, No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, nourishes it and cherishes it. See, so mean, nasty, hardened criminals love, but they may love only themselves. Everybody sacrifices. So again, even the meanest, nastiest, most ruthless criminals sacrifice. And here, they again probably only sacrifice for themselves. For instance, you know, in a lighthearted thing, um, vanity. We sacrifice to look good. Now, we might sacrifice to live long, healthy, productive lives for the Lord. Or we might sacrifice to fit into better-looking clothes for the summer, to be good, looking good at the beach, looking good, right? So we sacrifice for a variety of reasons, but we sacrifice for that which we love. And so, for instance, if you ladies... Uh, I've, I've heard too many ladies say this to know that it's not true. They talk about wanting to lose a size here or there so that they can look better for this or that occasion. A lot of women lose weight to uh, look good at weddings or special events, things like this. And really, honestly, as a husband, if my wife is wanting to lose weight, going back to attend her 20-year reunion, I might get a little offended at that. You know, hey, I'm here. I'm here every day. Why aren't you losing weight for me? 
right? I mean, wouldn't you think that way? I mean, you just want to go look to those people that you knew 20 years ago. I've been with you for 20 years. Look good for me. So, I mean, I think we have a right to get possessive of this love, this sacrificial love that our husbands or wives are exercising. Now, I'm not just pointing the finger at wives. It's us two. We guys do it. I mean, my wife would love for me to lose some weight. I, I don't know how it's going to happen, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I, I, I want to please her. But I love my lifestyle. I just eat potato chips. I don't exercise, except when she makes me do Zumba. And, and, and so, I mean, I like my life. I don't want to sacrifice my lifestyle to please my wife. And, and that's the nub of it, isn't it? I mean, as a husband, I should want to sacrifice for my wife. But how much, you know, where is it today? Oh, my goal is way up here. But the meter, you know, it's like slamming those things at the fair. Oh, put all your strength. Whoop. You know, that's kind of what I feel like sometimes. I want it to go up to the top, dear. I really do. (laughs) Well, work out then, you lazy bum. You know, that's her response. I mean, she wants a strong, muscular husband. When, when, at night when she's tired, she's like, carry me. I'm like, I can't carry you. She said, oh, 20 years, you still can't carry me up the stairs. <laughs> I, if you were unconscious, honey, I would carry you out of a burning house. I, believe me, I, I promise you. But not every night to bed. <laughs> so see, we all sacrifice for that which we love. The sacrifices are real. And yet, we love many things. I love beer. My wife hates beer, but I like beer. I, you know, I, know, I know beer is here. That's where my beer is. I, I'd love to just not drink it for you know, years to please my wife, but, but I just haven't made that sacrificial step yet. Maybe I should. Maybe it would take our marriage to a whole new level. Now, God, I want to introduce this topic. Our love can be measured. It can be measured. It is measurable. Now, could Solomon have asked these two women right there in his court, which one of you loves this child more? I'll let whoever loves the child more take the child home. Ooh, ooh, that's me, right? It's easy to say. It's easy to say that. So how do you get to the nub of it? He figured it out like that. In seconds, he devised the means by which he could measure their love. And it had to do with measuring what they were willing to sacrifice in order to get what they wanted. What they wanted was the child. But so when he threatened that child, they were willing to back off totally for the good of the child. So he got to their sacrificial love for that child, wanting what's best for the child as opposed to for themselves. Now, God tests us daily. A friend this week spoke about the dialectic of desire, and God tests us with this. We're constantly having to deal with competing desires. They're both good. It's good for me to lose weight for the benefit of my wife. It's good for me to lose weight for the benefit of my life and health, to be able to provide for my children, see my grandchildren. But yet, it's also good for me to enjoy pleasures of life. God has given them to us for these reasons. And so he's given us this open world in which all of this competition for our affection and for that which we love, in which we're tested. Where do we really sacrifice? What will we really sacrifice? So I want to ask you what you love most in life. Because I can give you the means of determining it if you don't know. Do you want to know the answer? 
Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? What are you living for? How are you spending your time is the indicator of what you love. Now, it gets a little complex, but let me ask you this. Sometimes we forget, see, because we made a decision as to what we love, based on what we love. And then we begin that life of living out what we love, a sacrificial love. But let me ask you this. We do things that are sometimes become disassociated from what we love. Why? Because what we love is kind of constantly in flux, perhaps. It should be. Like, for instance, my love for my wife, it should constantly be growing. My love for my children, constantly growing. My love for the Lord, constantly growing. But is it? I ask you, is it? No. I think there's this constant competition. There is this love of myself that is always at work in everything that I do. It's at work. It wants to take you over and have you love only yourself to the exclusion of anybody else on this earth. So, once you've spent that time and money, that sacrificial love at the end of a day or a week or a month or a year, I give you another diagnostic question to determine whether the object of your affection that you have patterned your life after is still at the core of your being. And my statement is this. If at the end of a day or a week or a month or a year, if you find yourself joyful, experiencing the peace of God and living a joyful life, then your love and your actions are coherent. They are working towards the same things. Your sacrificial love is still oriented to that which you are sacrificing for, and you love that which you are sacrificing for. But if at the end of a day, a week, a month, or a year, you look back and you think, I'm bitter now. I'm not joyful, I'm not at peace, I'm very unhappy. Then what I'm telling you is that what you've done that last day, week, month, or year used to be oriented to what you loved, but it no longer is most likely. Your love has changed and your daily behaviors or weekly or monthly are no longer coherent with what you love. Now, I would tell you that that could be for the better or for the worse, But what I'm mostly saying is it's probably for the worse because you've allowed love of self to displace sacrificial love of others. Let me ask you men, especially you husbands and fathers, why do you work? Why do you work? It's not that you have to work. We all know we have to work. But why do you work? The world would have you believe that you work for fulfillment, that a man works to fulfill a dream. Even Christian men are taught this now, that they have a calling, they have uh, this objective in life that they must have in order to accomplish these things. And if you don't have it, you're such a loser. You've got to get that. You've got to figure it out. You know, you've got to go out on a mountain. You know, go buy a Harley and ride across the country for the next year. You know, then maybe you'll know. That's what men and even Christian men are being told in our world. And it's garbage. If you are a husband or a father, I want you to look right now at your family. Go ahead. I want you to look at your family. That's why you work. You work for their good. You work sacrificially for them. It's not for you. 
It's for them. Now, you might not enjoy your work. Boo hoo. <laughs> we could all be uh, migrant farmers in some South American nation working for some drug lord, you know? I encourage you to enjoy your work. It could be much worse. Think about time and history. Think about, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago. I mean, we're 99.9% .9 of the people are just serfs working for, you know, mucking around in the dirt all day. I think we lead pretty good lives now. You know, try to eke out a little more joy out of your jobs these days. I, th I think you can find it. Now, you ladies, it's said that a man, he works from sun to sun, but a woman's work is never done, right? And we know this to be true. I mean, even women who want it all, even women that are out in the workforce, I mean, even after all these years, they still do studies and find that even in a two-couple working family where they have multiple kids at home, the mom is doing this much of the labor and the husband is doing this much. Their fair share, right? Yeah, that 20% or whatever it is. And so those women are very, very angry at their husbands, typically. <laughs> but again, you know, I, it's just, it's, it, I, I'm telling you, you're, you're looking at reality. You know that the men aren't going to do that. You know that. I mean, we know we face this reality. And I'm not going to tell you that it's going to change. I'm not going to tell you that you're going to love every day, you ladies. I mean, you know how rough your life is. You know how much you're taken for granted. This story that I read that I could barely get through introduced Solomon Rosenberg, his two sons, David and Joshua, and his mother. What's her name? Wasn't given. That's mom, right? Mom loses her identity in her family. And at times, it is almost too much for her to bear because she just feels that nobody appreciates what she's done. She pours herself out. She's like the oil in the engine that allows the engine to run and then pff, gets flushed after three months. That's how the mom feels. You know it's true. I'm not going to lie to you. It is Mother's Day. We can pretend, you know. But no, I mean, half of you probably, like my wife, she came down at 6.30. She says, am I going to make my Mother's Day breakfast? <laughs> Everybody's sleeping except me, and I'm studying for this. And I said, no, I'll, I'll make it. She says, no, no, no. You go. I said, no, no, really, I'm ready, I'm ready. So then I got the kids up. We all made her a Mother's Day breakfast. But still, you know, I mean, it's like this one day. What is it? One out of 52 is less than 2% of the Sundays. But I'm just sitting there. It's Mother's Day. I don't care. It's, I've got to preach. <laughs> but I want to tell you moms that sacrificial love is the purpose of our existence. You embody the purpose of man's existence on earth. It isn't always fun, I know, but it is rewarding. I know you will be rewarded for this if you stay at it. Stay at it. I encourage you to. 
I will do my best if I get to talk with your husbands about being better husbands. But I'm up here telling you how bad a husband I am, so don't expect a whole lot. <laughs> but I will try. I will try. I mean, all of us men can improve. <laughs> what is it said that a man marries a woman, he never wants her to change, and a woman can't wait to get her hands on her husband? <laughs> She's going to mold him into something better, make him the $6 million man. So I encourage you to not let bitterness rob you of your joy. You can have it if you orient yourself towards what you love. Both husbands and, and, uh, and uh, wives here. If you orient yourselves truly towards your spouse and your family, you will find joy in this life. And you will find that all of your time is well spent, even if it's you know, not an immediate joy. There's joy in it. Because when I look back on my work, um, I haven't always liked a lot of what I've done, but I've loved being able to provide uh, for my family and my children and bless them as much as I can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word uh, that is just always filled with so many truths, so many wonderful surprises that open our eyes to the world that you have intended for us. We know that this world has fallen so far short, but we forget sometimes, Father, that you have still kept it so close to what you want. We're all going in that direction. Even the unbelievers cannot totally escape your plan. They are bound by it. They are bound by you. They can only go so far as you will allow them. Uh, all of the masses of humanity are like the oceans, Lord. They can go only to the coast. They can go only to the shore and they expend all of their energy on that shore, uh, suffering no harm. Your plan will stand. Your purposes will succeed. We thank you, Father, for who you are, for what you have done in our lives. We thank you for our wives. For those men of us here, we thank you, Lord, for the wives that you've given us. We thank you for the children that they have blessed us with. And we ask you to bless them this day. We pray for them, Lord, and lift them up. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.